Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Today is July the 15th, 2019. This is episode 2470 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Monday, so it's time for a listener feedback show. I've got a pretty good lineup for you today. We're going to start off with a guest segment. Uh, usually I reserve Wednesdays for guests, but we have about a, I think it's about a 12-minute segment with a guy named Pete Mance Raymond. He is a podcast host himself of a show called Free Man Behind the Wall. He and some partners currently have an Indiegogo fundraiser going on for the Monopoly on Violence, which is a documentary about the state and solutions to the problem of the state being, well, the state in the first place. Uh, we're going to talk about that for a little bit with him. Then we're going to go on to some questions and stuff from the audience. Um, I've got a question on what happens when the FTC finds a company that just fined Facebook $5 billion bucks. Where's the money going to go? That's the question. Not what's happening to Facebook. Where's the money go? Uh, we'll talk about what generally happens most of the time when the government finds somebody. What I think's happening here, but the mysterious thing about the FTC's website is it doesn't seem to say anything about what they do with money when they, get, they find somebody. Well... Talk about what that does or does not mean. Um, <clears throat> question on fattening up rabbits and why you just shouldn't even really bother thinking that way. Uh, voluntary vehicle repossession. So you can't pay for your car. Instead of making the repo man track you down and take it back, uh, you just contact the lender and say, hey, I'm, or the, you know, what have you, the, the lien holder, and say, I'm turning it in. Um, And then I have a question on the grand solar minimum and crop loss, and this guy named Ice Age Farmer. I'm going to try to talk about reality versus, I think, some hype here. A uh, question on using mulch from conifer trees and the dreaded soil acidity problem and why you just should just forget that that was ever a thing. Uh, paying down a mortgage, or should you save and invest your money? And then choosing the right ammo for a particular rifle and particular need for that rifle. So we're going to talk about a bunch of different stuff today. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor today, number one today, is Ridge Wallet. I love the Ridge Wallet, specifically because it has helped me be more of a mentalist, right? So because I'm big on things like EDC and stuff like that, I have always been the kind of person that can let what I have with me get out of hand. And I am all for being prepared. If you look at my keychain alone, there's there's numerous items there that are probably not in the average keychain. Um, but I also don't want to be carrying a bunch of crap that I don't need. And so when I got rid of my standard, you know, bifold billfold and went to the Ridge Wallet at first, I was like, man, it's a lot of stuff that won't fit in there. And now that I've been carrying it for over two years, I can't see myself going back. It is a great way to minimize what you're carrying, to make sure everything's organized, to always be able to get at it right away, to not be sitting on a big lump when you're driving down the road screwing up your back, uh, and, and, and it protects from identity theft. And they have some other cool stuff at RidgeWallet.com you're going to want to check out. MSB members, make sure you get your discount if you purchase anything from Ridge Wallet. Next up today, Jam Bullion. You know, it is a certainty that the United States dollar will be le worth less next year than it is this year. It is a certainty because the people that control the monetary supply, the Federal Reserve, that is their plan. 
That's their goal. It's their stated goal. They've done pretty good at it. They've devalued the dollar by about 98% since 1913 when they took over. It's not going to crash. You're not going to be living in Somalia tomorrow or uh, Uganda or Zimbabwe or what have you. Uh, and, and, and take, you're not going to be in the Weimar Republic. That's, that's not the likely future, but they're going to devalue the money. And so it makes sense to have a diversified plan for your wealth. And I've always been for taking about 5% of your net wealth up to about 10. Personally, my, my individual recommendation is 5. I'm comfortable with a 5 to 10% recommendation of your net wealth and put it into hard assets like silver and gold. So then once you're going to do that, this is what you need to understand. There is no reason to spend more money for a silver eagle than you have to. They're all the same. That is the entire point. So you want a company that has great pricing, great service, free shipping, And if possible, one that will give you a discount. Though discounts on silver and gold are hard to come by. But I got one for you. JM Bullion, this company's been working with us now for about seven years. They take care of this audience. They have great pricing. They have great service. They have free shipping. And on orders above $300, they have a discount for you that you can get as an MSB member. So why would you buy your silver and gold anywhere but JM Bullion? If you listen to the Survival Podcast. With that, let's kind of jump on into the show here today. I want to just remind you again real quick, we're only 30 episodes away now. 30 episodes from episode 2500. need you to call the jerk line at 877-644-1345. 877-644-1345. Uh, tell us about your life and how TSP has impacted your life and why I'm a jerk for making it better. And we will have episode 2500 for you. I think it's going to end up being sometime in early September. might be right about as the kids go back to school, in fact. So you want to be part of this. It's really cool. Plenty of room left for people to be part of it. Call on in. Jot some things down. You get about two minutes to talk and tell us how TSP or even our communities and subcommunities have made your life better. Things that you've been able to do. Things that you've gotten uh, past because of being prepared Be part of this one and be part of history. Episode 2500, call the jerk line. It might sound like a bad porno number, but it's not. 877-644-1345. So let's start off. I have a guest segment here with Pete Mance Raymond. Again, he does a show called Free Man Behind the Wall. He has an Indiegogo running. It's already fully funded. So right now he's looking at stretch goals and they're you know thinking about you know, subtitles and going international. They're going to have this documentary done, though. They have the money to do it. It's going to be on Netflix. It's going to be on Amazon Prime. It's going to have that sense of legitimacy because of that. And I am really excited to bring him on. He's a good dude. I'll tell you up front, we do not 100% agree on some things. We're both anarchists. He's a little bit more anti-cop than I am, if you can believe that. Because I'm not anti-cop. I'm, I'm anti-oath-breaking cop. I understand that I disagree with a lot of what cops do, even when they're doing their job, quote-unquote, right. But I also understand the world we live in. Pete's not so much. Just so you know, because I turn you on to somebody, I owe it to you to let you know. We don't have to completely agree on that to agree on what both of us want in this world. And that's hopefully someday a stateless society. Until then, every single way that the state can be disempowered and the private sector can be empowered to serve the needs of humanity, the better. With that in mind, really excited right now to bring Pete Mance Raymond on the Survival Podcast. Again, good dude. Been on his show twice myself. I'm sure I'll be on there again. Uh, and he is working hard to open minds and influence people. With that, hey, Pete, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks for having me, Jack. I mean, you've been on my show twice. So, um, you know, and those were, 
well received. So um, I, I consider it quite an honor to be on yours. Well, man, I'm glad to have you here. You got something going on that I I just found out about, and it's you're, you're run. I think it's on Indiegogo, and you're running kind of like a Kickstarter type thing for it, and it's already funded. But like you got a lot of time left in it, so uh, I figure we can get you on here to talk about it, maybe get some support out of this audience. So tell us what you're up to. About a year ago, a friend of mine here in Atlanta uh, approached me and said, I-, "I just bought a 4K camera. I have all this equipment." I want to shoot a documentary about the history of nation states concentrating on all the negative because, I mean, really, what else is there? (laughs) And transitioning into an anarcho-capitalist society. And I was like, that sounds completely insane. (laughs) Why me? I don't have any history with making film or anything. He goes, well, honestly, because you're a podcaster and – we want to interview a bunch of, you know, really famous people in this, and you talk to all of them. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, that makes sense. So um, I'm like, how much is this going to be out of pocket, of course? And he's like, well, you know, to start, we just got to get the business running, a lawyer and everything. I'm like, great. And it just, after a while, the idea of it just, no one's ever done anything like this before. No one's ever done like a documentary on Austrian economics or anarcho-capitalism, volunteerism, or anything like that. So we got everything going. We went to Anarchapulco, did four interviews down there, and got got the ball rolling. But we were like, we really have to economize. So what do we do? I'm like, well, Mises University is in July, July 14th through the 20th. I, I said, there's going to be 15 academics there that we can interview for. It's like, okay, so we'll plan for that. So that's what we're doing. Monday, uh, Monday, we're all going to be heading down to Mises University. We got the, I mean, they're, they've bent over backwards for us. I mean, the Mises Institute is giving us our own room with natural lighting and everyone who's there has already been agreed to be interviewed except for Judge Napolitano, who I may <laughs> talk to there. Uh, yeah, I'm going to talk, no, I'm going to talk to him and be like, Hey, everybody else is doing it. Why don't you want to be a part of it? You know, peer pressure works on everyone. Hey, tell, tell him, tell him your buddy Jack came on his show. He, the, the, you owe, he owes me one and, you, and, and he, he, he could pay it back by being with you. You know, Jack, I mean, do you know, um, Jack? I don't know. I mean, I was on a show like, God, like eight years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll use anything I can get, yeah. <laughs> but you, you know, Robert Murphy's going to be there. Peter Klein, Joe Rockwell, Jeff Deist, everyone's going to be there. They already have their questions. They know what they're going to be asked. And then we're just going to jump into it. We're going to start from there. Then we have another trip to Texas, Louisiana, and Oklahoma to hit people like Ron Paul, Scott Horton, Walter Block, Per Beeland. Maybe yourself if you're free. I can make um, it work. Yeah. And, um, and then after that, we figure right after October, we'll start putting everything together. Last thing will be the score, obviously. And we've actually got um, now not 100% that he can do it because there's no – he may be called on tour, but the uh, the hip-hop band Arrested Development in Atlanta, um, they've won a couple Grammys and everything. Their guitar player, J.J. Boogie, is – is an anarcho-capitalist, a volunteerist, and he said if he's available, he'll do the score for it. I mean, he's, he's an engineer, he's a producer and everything. Um, he's 
not asking for money. And, you know, we just have this thing lined up and we started this Indiegogo and we're like, okay, what do we need to get this thing produced? And, you know, on, on Netflix, on Amazon Prime, on all these things. And we came up with, with 15 grand. Well, the, the original idea was feast or famine. We don't know what the hell is going to go on. Hmm. We said it 45 days or 60 days. I can't remember what it is, but it was funded immediately. People got more excited about this than we did. And that's kind of hard, but right now we're making the sausage. So, you know, we're still like, uh, you know, you know, arguing back and forth and writing questions and writing script, you know, writing the script and everything. And it's, you know, as we go kind of thing, uh, because you have to do it when you're dealing, you have to be able to write the script to match the questions and the answers and everything. So, um, yeah, so we have this Indiegogo thing. We, we figured 15 grand would take care of travel, would take care of, um, you know, most everything, but, you know, we knew we were cutting it close. Well, it's gotten to the point where we're at like 17,500 right now. And what, and the average person is, if you look at how many people, how much we've taken in and how many people have donated, the average donation is over a hundred dollars. So, you know, and obviously you get something with it. You know, if you give 10 bucks, when it comes out, you get a download of a 4k download, 30 bucks, you get a Blu-ray, hundred bucks, you get thanked in the credits, you get the Blu-ray. And we we have a producer credit one, which is $500, where you will get your own title card in the, in the credits. And on the IMDb page, you will be listed as a producer. And I think at this point, we've had 15 people actually sign up for that. That's, that's awesome, man. So tell people a little bit about what your goal is here. Obviously, your goal is to raise the funds, which you've done, raise enough so you can make it even better, which you're working on get it produced and get it out. But I mean the larger goal. What do you hope happens when this gets released? What are you who are you looking to reach with it? It's it's because it sounds like it's beyond preaching to the converted. Everybody. Now, here's the goal. We're going to do we're going to do a good bit of it, you know, probably we want to try and keep it at 90 minutes because go past 90 minutes people can you know, people have short attention spans. The first, ha- the first half hour has to be about um, the history of nation states and just the worst things that they do, war, you know, taxation, all of that. You know, we'll have experts, we'll have Scott Horton talking about war, um, taxation, Jeff Dice, the president of the Mises Institute is a tax attorney. So we're going to, you know, we'll have all of this set up. Right in the middle, we want to talk about how we transition into more liberty and anarcho-capitalist kind of framework. So we'll have someone like Michael Bolden from the 10th Amendment Center who works on nullification at the local level, um, you know, ballot initiatives to, you know, decriminalize anything that's anything that's possible. We just saw Denver decriminalize mushrooms, you know, magic mushrooms. Um, and then we're going to, we'll, you know, the last part of it will be theory, will be the theory of what would an anarcho-capitalist society look like? How would you know, how would security be handled? How would courts be handled? If somebody doesn't want to go into court, how would that be handled? How would you know if you have a city of fifteen thousand people? How would you handle defense? You know, and we have people like Robert Murphy and Per Beeland and um, Lou Rockwell to answer those questions. So you know, it's it's a huge task. It's a huge undertaking. Luckily, I write, 
you know, so I've written a couple books and, uh, Chris writes, who's, uh, he's the one who came up with the idea for this. And Robert is our, our third person and he's, um, you know, really good with, um, just idea, you know, you need an idea map and he, you know, he, he comes up with great ideas and we have a couple other people that are helping us write this and helping us write questions and doing some editing. Cause we have someone working with us who has all the editing equipment, which is why it's, you know, why we only ask for 15 up front because, you know, when you, when you get into editing and stuff like that and score, having to pay for scoring, you're into the hundred thousands. Yes. But, yes. you know, we've, you know, we've been able to, because we have people who are so excited about this and so, you know, want to see this, you know, what everyone's saying is, I want to send this to my uncle. I want to send it to, you know, to my brother. I want to be able to, you know, I want someone to go, Hey, look at this on Netflix. Look at what's on Netflix. It's on Netflix. That means it's important, right? Yeah. Go look at this and tell me what you think. And my whole thing is, in my mind, right now, Netflix has 129 million subscribers. If 1%, if 1% watch that, that's, one, you know, if 5% watch that, that's what, 6 million? Yep. If, five per, if 5% or 10% of that embrace the, the message, that's a lot of freak. That's like Ron Revolution kind of, you know, kind of numbers, you know, and and with the potential to be even more because you know it's going to be on Amazon Prime as well. And you know, we're gonna one of the my idea was the more money we make is to international getting sub you know getting good subtitles done for it, and you know pushing it out into um, you know beyond. United States. And like I said, nothing like this of this subject has been done before. And I find it very difficult to believe because you would have thought somebody would have had this idea by now, but maybe now is the time. And our real goal, our real goal is we can have this out by the end of the year. We want to have it out by March or April of next year, right as the elections are starting to ramp up and people are looking up on the stage and going, okay, we have a guy that talks about his penis size in debates against, say it's Kamala Harris. Oh, there's a cop up there who puts, who puts people in, who puts people in prison because they take their kids out of school. Or you have Beto O'Rourke who pretends to be Mexican. Or you have, you, you just, you have this clown show up there. And it's like here. We know it's, here's a lot of history. Here's a lot of, um, you know, here's a, here's a path towards liberty and more nullification. And here's a potential. Here's something that could potentially, and we'll see how people, we'll see how people deal with it, you know, and you know, I, 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 like I said before though, everyone I've talked to is way more excited about this than I am right now. And that's kind of, that's Express because I am really excited about it, especially since I'm t- you were three days away from starting inter- uh, starting the bulk of the interviews for it. But um, yeah, I mean, all the feedback I'm getting on this is this is an incredible idea. It's an, a time it's time has come, and I'm just I want to give the give this to every coworker I have. Awesome, man. Well, I you know. I back it for you. Apparently, I'm the only person in the world that can break Indiegogo, and it wouldn't take my contribution. So I, <laughs> I, 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 sl- I slid you some uh, Bitcoin out of the Jack's wallet on the down low uh, to help you out. I want my audience to, uh, to, to help back this as well. So you have uh, an Indiegogo campaign. 
Uh, trying to tell somebody an Indiegogo link is pointless on a podcast. I will make sure that the link is in the show notes, not only for today, but I'll remind people all week long, and we'll keep it in the show notes Monday through Friday this week for you, and we'll see if we can get you some more backing on it, because I think this is an important project. And I, I think one of the more important things in this, and I'm so glad you've included it, is how would this work? Because you know the bullshit you always get, Marodes. And people yep. don't understand that. Marodes is like it's just a... Like some people, I think, just think like it's only about no. It's it's the entire objection of how would we summed up in one stupid statement, right? And so people can't understand. Well, how would you handle conflict resolution? How would you deal with infrastructure? How would you deal with what we referred to in in in, in history as the commons areas that are open to everyone? People can't figure out how that would work, and it and it it, it strikes me as odd because. Human beings have been around in one form or another for over a hundred thousand years, and the period in that of time in our existence that we have lived without the majority of the world living mostly in anarchism is the smallest portion of our history that we can measure. It's it's actually very tiny if you actually think about hunter gatherer societies, tribal societies, and what have you. Those are very largely anarcho societies. People confuse that because they think anarchy means no rules versus no rulers. People self-organize. People make decisions. And I think by taking, basically you're taking a classic sales formula. We're going to agitate the problem and show the problem, demonstrate that the problem's real, and then propose a solution, and then help the person understand the solution is actually something that could be done. So I, th I think that's fantastic, Pete. I I'm glad you were with us today. And like I said, I'll make sure I try to push as many people towards you and supporting you in this as I can. Well, the if they go to Indiegogo and they search the Monopoly on Violence, that's going to be the name of it. Uh, the original name was Beyond the State, and you can search that as well. And, um, you know, just to give a preview, Per Beeland, who's a professor of entrepreneurship at Oklahoma State University, says – you have, what you have to understand about an anarchist society is most people today, they work to pay taxes. Hmm. If you lived in a society where you didn't have to pay taxes, how many hours would you actually have to work to just maintain the standard of living you have right now? How much easier would your life be? You know, it's stuff like that that we're going to address in it. And we're going to ask, you know, ask real questions that address people's emotions and address their mind. Because, I mean, pretty much almost everybody who's going to be uh, interviewed in this is a PhD. Awesome. So, awesome. Man. Yeah. Well, again, man, thanks for being with us today. Like I said, I'll, uh, I'll try to send people your way all this week. I appreciate it, Jack. Thank you so much. All right, so again, it was, it was great talking to Pete. There was a little bit of modulation at a few times in there, but I think everything came through clear enough as to what's going on. I do have a link to the Indiegogo where you can help support this project. I do think it's an important one, or I wouldn't have had Pete on. Like I said, Pete and I are not going to 100% agree on everything, but remember what my segment uh, was last week that we talked about with the concept of liberty. The more people are for liberty, the less consensus they're going to have, other than... People should be left alone to do as they please until they violate somebody's rights to do the same. That is the most important consensus that we can have. How we get there, there's, there's thousands of possibilities. But one of the things we have to do first is open people's minds that it's even possible to do a lot of things that right now people don't even think we can do without the state. Let's not even worry about anarchism. Let's talk about just less government. 
everybody says that, well, let's say everybody, about half the people out there say they're for less government. So you stop about, start talking about how to make less government. As soon as you talk about government not doing things, they can't even see how we would do them. Even though there's a vast amount of things that the government does today, they didn't even do 50 years ago. And somehow those things got done. Somehow those things happened. There are other ways, and that's what this project that Pete's doing is, is about. One of the things, anyways, open people's minds to the fact that it's even possible. So do consider supporting. I would consider it a personal favor if some of you guys would get on over to Indiegogo and make a contribution to this and be part of this movement. All right, with that, let's talk about the FTC, um, a body of government doing important work to help protect us because, well, without government, who else would do it? So, um... Darren in Missouri asked this question. It's, it's, I think it's the first time anybody's ever asked me any version of this question. And here's what it says. It says, the FTC fined Facebook $5 billion in a settlement for mismanagement of personal data. Who gets the $5 billion and how does that money get spent? Ten years, and I still enjoy the show, Darren in Missouri. Well, Darren, thank you. Um, I can't be 100% sure that I'm giving you an accurate answer here. So let's talk about... Generally speaking, the three ways that various organizations handle things when they find a party and when they're a government entity. And this can be true at federal, state, and local levels, and it changes across the board based on the organization, how they're empowered, and how that particular body of government, you know, whether it's a city, a county, a township, a federal, a state, whatever, okay? Uh, But the number one way, in general, again, this is in general, is it will go into a general fund for that body of government or some overseeing branch of body of government. For instance, making it much smaller, in Texas, if a local police officer from you know Sheboyganville, Texas, writes you a ticket, uh, a portion of that goes into the general fund for Sheboyganville, a portion goes to the Sheboyganville's masters at the county level, and a portion of it goes to the state. Uh, and, and what that does is it prevents Sheboyganville from getting too happy with their speed traps because they don't get to keep all the money anyway. In some instances, you might think it actually makes make them a little more ticket happy because they have to write a lot of tickets to get their piece. And then that money goes into a general fund, which, among other things, goes back to help funding the police department, right? So is that how the FTC finds work? My guess is it pretty much is, that it will go into the federal government's general fund, Some of it may be specifically earmarked to cover the cost of certain things encumbered by the FTC during the settlement process, investigation, etc. But overall, it goes to the general fund. This prevents the FTC from simply saying, hey, guess what? We, uh, we, uh, we funded ourselves, uh, which the ATF does often with the way they do things. They are considered self-funding, and they consider that they, they are zero cost to taxpayers because they are, first of all, a tax-collecting authority, which is what they say they are. Um, so I don't see how that's zero cost to taxpayers. But what they're basically saying is all the money they seize, they use to fund their operations. Some of it fines, some of it is seizures, etc. All right, so, but generally speaking... It goes into some sort of a general fund, uh, which, of course, money, money then trickles back to fund that organization. So basically it's like, if you think of the government like mafia, and I think that's a pretty good analogy, um, the Don gets the money from the lieutenant, and then the lieutenant's operations are funded by the Don. And, and it may be some Robin Hood. You know, lieutenant 1 
may have brought more money in for the Don than Lieutenant 2, but Lieutenant 2 has operational expenses, so it gets spread up. This is the way that the government specifically tries to market the way they do things. This is how you're supposed to see what they do. There is another way that, that things happen, though, and that is probably the best-case scenario is restitution to a victim. One of the organizations that, in general, does a pretty decent job, especially when we consider how efficient government is not, uh, is the SEC. So in instances, there have been instances anyway where the SEC will find somebody And there were specific investors who were defrauded or otherwise uh, lost money through some illegal or nefarious activity uh, by the entity paying the fine. And that money can and often is used to at least reimburse the losses to a degree. Though in general, it's never sufficient to totally reimburse the losses. And government's inefficiency somehow finds a lot of that money not getting used for that purpose. But that's the other thing. The, the worst case scenario, and it does happen, is that the money goes to the organization that issued the fine to help fund that organization's operations. This is less common than you might think, uh, at least in a direct way, where this agency, let's say if it was the FTC, finds it, they just put the money in their own fund. Because that has a bad public perception, as you might imagine, but it does occur. More likely, the way that happens is an organization receives funding based on actions. So that's in a, usually in a scenario where there is no fines. Fines generally kind of go at least up to the, the supervising Don in the mafia family is the way to look at it. But what can happen, and, and this can be a problem as well, uh, Child Protective Services is a perfect example. The more uh, children they seize, the more money they get even though there's no direct money. There's indirect money coming from other sources of stolen money. So that can happen. It can happen directly or indirectly. My guess is that the FTC's fines go to the United States Federal Government's General Fund, or they may be at least earmarked for things in that vein. But there is probably... Now, here's why I'm not sure of that. You'd think if that was the case, it'd be easy to find out. Uh, I spent about 30 minutes trying to get an actual answer. Now, I didn't do anything like contact the PR department at the FTC because I didn't want to beat myself in the face with a cheese grater this morning, but I was unable to get an actual verifiable answer. So if anybody has that answer, I'd like to know what it is. I found a variety of videos and things like that titled what happens, but all they're doing is capitalizing on what uh, Darren's asking. Apparently, a lot of people are asking that. So I sound like a video with Judge Napolitano talking about this. It's actually pretty old before they were sure how much money Facebook was going to get fined. And the video is called that, but it doesn't ever talk about it. So uh, I couldn't get an answer, and that's, that's a little suspicious to me. It really is. Most of the big federal alphabet agencies, you can find that information pretty quickly, actually. So uh, Next, this one comes from Steve. Steve says, tips to add more fat to rabbits. Are there breeds that naturally store more fat? Time and money aren't a concern. I'll pay to have a fattier rabbit for my personal consumption. I realize I can wrap them in bacon or add fat during preparation. I'm mostly wondering if they add fat content as they get older, as most people uh, harvest them before they get a chance to do so. Best I've come, idea I've come up with is to add fruit in quantities and increase over time. If they start to fatten up, please forward to the best person to address this question. Steve in Central PA, soon to be in Maine. Thanks for your jerkness. 
Uh, Steve, uh, this is really one of those things that's probably best to just not worry that much about. Let's start out with a fundamental reality about how rabbits store fat when they do. They don't store very much, a little bit, but very, very little, no matter how fat you make a rabbit, they store very little fat uh, intramuscularly. So when you think of something like when you get a really beautiful ribeye steak and you slice that ribeye open and you look and it has that intramuscular fat, that marbling we call it, that makes that meat so wonderful. Uh, rabbits store their fat uh, a lot like chicken does, though chicken can be much fattier. Uh, and they don't store fat in their skin the way chicken do. So when you when you render chicken skin, you get that beautiful fat that comes out of it. But you'll also find subcutaneous fat. You'll find fat that's between the skin and the top of the muscle floating there. And that's when you do get much fat at all on a rabbit, that's how you're going to get that. There's not a real high premium for rabbit fat, mainly because there's not a lot of it available, but it's not... It's not something that really is considered very culinarily useful or something like that. Again, maybe just simply because it's not high in quantity. Uh, I don't hear any BS rabbit starvation concerns here, so I'm not going to really address that. And anybody that thinks rabbit starvation is a thing that applies to people to keep rabbits in their backyard, I don't care if you eat rabbits five days a week. It doesn't. Move on with your life. Don't worry about things that don't matter. Uh, we'll talk about other things that don't matter in a later segment, but that is on the top of things that people think are things that they need to just stop worrying about. Rabbit starvation applies to people living in the mountains on starving rabbits and nothing else. It does not apply to normal people eating rabbit, even in high quantity. Uh, rabbit starvation is not too much protein. That's not what it is. Uh, it is a complete and total absence of fat. That's not going to be a thing here. Um, th let's talk about why people eat rabbits young. Rabbits are animals that you get your primary meat yield from their back legs and from their back. So your they call a saddle in rabbits. The saddle and the legs are where the majority of meat comes from in a rabbit. There's a little bit um, on the front legs and the forelegs and stuff like that, but it's mainly the hams and then that saddle all the way, ribs and ribs and all the way down to what we would call a rump roast, etc. On a on a, a steer and With a rabbit and the way that a rabbit moves, not only do those back legs get a lot of use, but the backbone of a rabbit gets a lot more use than something like a steer's does. Right? A steer kind of moves on those big four legs. Rabbits are more of a springboard-type animal. So even what we think of as traditionally tender cuts, like a loin, not a tenderloin, but a loin, tend to get pretty tough in a rabbit. Additionally, while the rabbit saddle, as again as they call it, and the, the whole loin from the neck down to the butt is really, really good, it's even when we're looking at the yield of a rabbit, it's still a minor component of the total meat volume compared to those two big, massive back legs. You let a rabbit get really old, and anybody that, that breeds rabbits will tell you that they're a stewing rabbit. You're, you're, you're not doing fricassee or something like that. Like, It gets tough. Even, you know, hutch-kept rabbits, it gets pretty tough. So people are eating those young bunnies because, number one, it's the most efficient time to eat them. They've spent a specific amount of time uh, feeding on the doe's milk, and then they were fed, and then they've reached a point where you can feed the hell out of them, and you're, you're, you're only going downhill in your ROI on, on ounces of meat per dollar spent. I know you say you don't care, but that's why people do it. 
uh, and then all you're doing is getting tougher and older rabbit. So that's why people do that. So it's really like fattening rabbits isn't a thing. Putting weight on rabbits is a thing, and, and you can there's tons of info on on breeding rabbits and you know getting your rapid weight gain up to your fryer size, your your, your fryer size bunnies, etc. Um, and, and that's really the way to approach it. There's a reason this isn't a thing, and that's because it, it just doesn't really it doesn't really work. And again, even if you were you know you can, you're right in that if you feed an animal sugar and carbohydrates, whatever fat storage they're capable of, it will maximize it. But you're going to get that floating fat. Think of it when you when you skin a deer, you've got tallow. You're not ever going to get a lot of tallow on a rabbit that, that kind of might be intermuscular. But most of the fat on a deer, you'll find this jelly-like fat you can just grab and pull off with your hands between the skin and the muscle, and it's stored outside like that. That's what you, that's really all you're going to be able to get a rabbit to put on in any quantity. Uh, next question comes in from Sean. Lots of variety today. Um, He says, I have a question about voluntary vehicle repossession and the effects it will have on my credit score. Uh, he worked very long and hard to increase. And he goes into why he wants to do this, and basically the vehicle's screwed and they won't fix it for him. Okay. It doesn't matter as to why you want to do this. Um, whether or not there's any kind of um, other option here legally or whatever, that's a separate thing I can't answer. I can answer the core of the question. How badly does a voluntary vehicle repossession screw your credit up versus if you don't pay the bill long enough and they come looking for you and steal your car, right? They steal back your car because really it's not your car. It's the loan lien holder's car. From a credit score standpoint, there's no difference. People will try to explain to you how there might be a difference and blah, 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 and you took responsibility. Now, When it comes down to how it affects your overall credit score and your credit worthiness, it has almost no difference. In fact, you would best be said to say it has no difference. It will jack your credit score down in a bad way. Where it may have a difference, as you begin rebuilding your credit score after this catastrophe hits it, and you may get to the point where, let's say you're trying to buy a house, And the, the mortgage lender is on the fence with you. Your points are just barely under, just barely over somewhere. And the underwriter actually has some discretion. A lot of times that situation lasts for letters of explanation and things like that. And in your situation, the transmission literally exploded in three months of buying the vehicle. And the warranty company refused to cover the repairs, but offered to refund the warranty. That seems wrong. Um... He then used the refunded money to repair the truck and it had been falling apart ever since. And for six months, he tried to sell it even below Blue Book value with no, 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 no takers. Um, again, that's irrelevant to what it does to your credit score. But all of that in a letter, including documentation, may at some point be enough to push you across a line that otherwise you would not have crossed. Maybe. And it might help, maybe, that it was a voluntary turn-in versus a forced um, repossession. But let me tell you how this could be even worse, okay? So let's say that you, and I have no idea what you own on the vehicle. Oh, uh, $9,500 bucks is what you paid, so I have no idea what you have left owed. But let's say that basically, like most loans work, you've paid almost nothing down on the balance uh, in this first six months or nine months of having, and you still owe like 
$9,000 on the car. Uh, let's say that when they get the car from you and they wholesale auction it, they because they're going to get money for it somehow, right? They're going to get whatever they can as fast as they can. Let's say they get $3,000 for it and you still owe nine. They can still come after you for that $6,000. They may or may not, but they very well might. And they can still issue a judgment against you for that $6,000. And then the problem becomes that you owe both You are hit on the credit report for both the repossession and then for failure to repay the other money as two separate instances. And while in some states it's a little harder, they can usually still do that even if, if you say, well, then screw it, I'll make them repossess it instead of voluntarily turning it in. They can usually still do that anyway, even if they come and physically repossess your vehicle against your will. Let me store something else at this. Um... It is most likely the case that if you owe, whether it's Ford Credit or whether it's uh, Joe Blow's banking company, regardless, they will use a third-party intermediary to actually take possession of the vehicle. And when they take the vehicle, it won't go back to the car lot it came from. It will go to some place, some car jail, right? Like a car jail, a truck jail. And then it will be wholesale from there, and there will be a cost for it to go there for the for the uh, the company to pick it up and take it, and they will probably bill you for it, even if you voluntarily repossess it. And if you do this, also be prepared that the people, you know, they might have you bring it to a place, or they might have somebody come get it. If they have somebody come get it, be prepared that those people will probably look at you as though they're doing a regular repossession. Here's how I know that. At one point in my life, I lost a job when I worked for Fluke Networks, and we were living in Pennsylvania. I had a company car. They said, do you want to buy the car? I said, what are the terms of buying the car? And they told me, and I said, no, I don't want to buy that car. So they said, okay, well, you'll, we'll have it picked up. So they sent, like, these three guys out there, and they were, like, breaking into the car. They had the car open and stuff, and I come out, I'm like, what, what are you guys doing? Oh, we're here to get this car. Yeah, here's the keys. And, and finally, I was like, why are you guys acting like this? So, you know, you never know how repossession is going to go. I'm like... It's a voluntary turn-in. Yeah, even sometimes we don't know, and I, we don't even we don't even know that. We just know we have to get the car. Okay, I work for a company. This is their car. It's not even my car. It's a work vehicle that they own or they lease or whatever. I don't understand. Here's the keys. Have at it, guys. And it was kind of weird, you know. It was almost like I was a deadbeat or something to these guys. So be prepared for that if you do this. I think you have to really look at this. And really, really think, is this what you really want to do? Because you may be better off limping this thing around for a while and even making double payments on it, whatever you can, to get it to a point where you can dispose of it, where you can you know, maybe trade it in on a, a, a new vehicle and through some sort of flim-flamming, and I hate more debt, but... If you have any value at all in, in what you're thinking of your future to your credit score, this is a big hit. This is a much bigger hit than missing four or five payments and finally catching up and then having that ding on your credit report. This is, this is a long-term ding. Uh, it's not as bad as a bankruptcy because you have other creditors you're satisfying in the interim, but it will severely knock you back. Again, the mitigating thing is you will be able to, in many situations, when you if if you have a creditor who's on the fence about you 
a full declaration and a letter of what actually happened may make them get off the fence. And it might not. But there is no real difference. Next from Ryan in Utah. Ryan says, I've been hearing about the grand solar minimum. Uh, is it a threat some are making it out to be? And he has a link to a guy that seems to be making a big splash lately named Ice Age Farmer, who's a YouTuber that does a YouTube show. Uh, and there's a link that I'll include there. And he says, even NASA has admitted that it's happening. Uh, mainstream media seems to be ignoring it. Guess it doesn't fit the global warming narrative. Is the Earth potentially going through a cooling period, and what should we do? Thanks. Uh, I am going to link to the Ice Age Farmer uh, segment and article that goes along with this email, so you can watch it and make a, a determination for yourself. I'll also include a link to NASA.gov that says, hey, there is such a thing, a grand solar minimum, and it is coming. Uh, it is something that happens with known frequency. This is not like something that's like, this is not the Mayan calendar and it happens every 26,000 years or something like that. In fact, that, the, the cycle time is 11 years. 11 years up, 11 years down. And this is consistent over and over and over again. Now, a grand solar minimum or a grand solar maximum is when you go decades or even more where the cycle itself continues, but it is less fluctuating. So a grand solar minimum would mean that even when the activity of the sun comes back, it doesn't come back to what is considered with big giant air quotes normal. Or a grand solar maximum would be a period of time where it stays really, really active. Uh, something like, you know, you would think of as like during the medieval warm period would be a grand solar maximum. And the Munder Minimum, which ran from 1645 to 1715 and created what they called a mini ice age, then you have a completely different scenario. So um, it's it, it, this is the type of thing that does happen. And then one of the things that people kind of gloss away from with because we don't want anything that takes away from the global warming narrative. That is a thing too, is that we've been under a modern solar maximum from 1914 to 2007. Even in our 11 year cycles, the sun has been, generally speaking, more active than average, even on the, the down cycles, except for the 1970s, which were cold as hell. So one of the things that helps people not freak out about this is having well, lived through the 1970s and understanding how big a difference it really is. And what Ice Age Farmer is saying is that this is having a huge impact on global food production, and there's a coming shortage of food, and everybody, ah! And it's not quite that bad, but yes. And it can be three or four years before we see the full effects of it, and everybody's going to starve, and blah, 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 blah. All right, so let's say that we go through a period of time where the climate does indeed cool, and a significant cooling would bring us back to, let's say, something like the 1970s. You know who suffered the most during that was Russia with their grain production because so much of their climate is at the edge of being able to do it in the first place. And who bailed them out? The United States. There's, there's two things going on that are hurting ac uh, agricultural production in America today. Two primary things. One is we had a pretty severe winter, and it lasted longer, and we had later freezes. Mostly that affected beef production in places like Montana, though. The real problem this year is weather-related, but it's rain. He goes on and on about these fields that are unplanted and fallow and blah, 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 and he keeps showing pictures of them, 
with standing water in them. Okay, you could be, it could be five degrees warmer or five degrees cooler, and that water is still why you can't plant that field. And, and there, no one has made a convincing argument to me anyway that a solar minimum is why we have more rain. We just are in a wet cycle, and that's more about El Nino and La Nina than it is about the solar minimum or the solar maximum. So what I think is actually going on here, yes, we are in a minimum. I do, th and, and one thing you have to understand is they say, even, he said even NASA admits it, the words grand solar minimum do not exist on the NASA page. There is, there is some level of consensus that indeed we are entering a period that may end up being similar to, though that consensus also seems to say not quite as significant as the Munder minimum. And I think that what the mainstream will eventually do if this becomes too obvious to even the most casual observer is use this as an excuse why global warming isn't destroying the entire planet and still want to continue with the insane policies of destroying the economy in order to prevent us from getting too warm by using fuels that will soon be going down in decline in their use anyway. Right. So I, I think there's a bunch of politics moving through this. And this is why when people tell me, like, the science says, no, it doesn't. And the science, I, this is my problem with science today. There are certain places where I don't believe science can say what it thinks. Because if you bring it up and it's counter to a narrative, such as global warming, then you are destroyed by your contemporaries. It's, it's like, it's, it's a monkey flinging shit contest. You can throw the most shit the fastest at this other monkey and shit bomb into him into oblivion. And even scientists that want to dissent, even, I'm talking about scientists that are like, that believe in human caused climate change. But also want to say, hey, look, yeah, there's an impact, but it's relatively minor to the totality of what's going on. They're afraid to say that because the shit bombing will commence on them immediately. They'll be called quacks, shills for Shell Oil Company, etc. And when and it's, it's people like Shell and Exxon, by the way, that are pushing a lot of the climate change legislation because it makes them a lot of money. I won't get into how that happens. So all this is going on. What do I really think, though, that this is going to do to the average person? In America, very little. There may be hard times for farmers. There's always hard times for farmers. Flooding, windstorms, hail, the weather sucks for farmers somewhere all the time. Our country has an ability to produce food beyond the needs of our country. Now, there was a time for a while when we became a net importer of food. I railed on that when I started the show 10 years ago. And in some ways, we still are. But when it comes down to it, if we have to, one of the reasons we're a net importer is because we export so damn much, right? Because there's a lot of money. Another thing we do is we make a lot of biofuel now. You know, how much of that corn that's not planted was going to be turned into ethanol anyway? Right, and aren't the the the, the farmers screaming because the prices are too low because my tariffs? Right, so I think all of this in the end is a concern. It's something to keep an eye on, but I think that right now you have two camps, and neither one of them is to be trusted at the present moment. You have the mainstream media that wants to turn a blind eye to all of this and not have a reasonable discussion, and I will include in that camp the, the mainstream scientists 
who even if they want to can't discuss it without having shit flung at them and having their careers destroyed. And then you have the contrarians that want to point this out and talk about it, but they, they don't want to talk about it as just a thing that happens and could have some impact. They want to talk about it as 2012-type level hysteria. And, and I don't think that either side can be really trusted with this right now. Uh, recently, one of my contacts on Facebook hit me up through Facebook Messenger. Uh, he's a person that's kind of into the whole prepper space. Uh, fairly well known, but I won't say who it is because there's no need to drag anybody else into this. Um, but he said, how would you be impacted in your production of food for self-sufficiency if this is true? And my response is, where I live, it would make my life easier. I got a question mark back from him. I'm letting him think about that. I mean, if, 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 let's say that Texas became more like central Arkansas because of a reduction in average temperature and duration of winter, et cetera. Can I not grow lots of food in central Arkansas or even central Missouri or Pennsylvania? You know, if my zone became a zone six, it's not like I'm growing, it's not like right here or right now I'm growing a lot of tropicals. You know, I'm not in zone nine. All you get is a more moderate climate. Now, who would it hurt? It's going to hurt people at the edges of the climate uh, USDA zones. If you're in zone nine, you're used to being able to get away with growing citrus, and you drop into eight, a lot of long-term perennial trees and other perennials that you always were able to rely on for production, like citrus, could become a thing of the past. And the area in the United States where we could grow citrus could shrink. Right? If it's corn, well, if you are growing corn in Oklahoma, you just act more like the person that grows corn, you know, in uh, in Ohio, right? And the Ohio guy acts more like the person that grows corn in Canada. The Canada guy has a problem because at the other extreme. So when we get into when we're people that are doing agriculture and things like USDA Zone Four and Zone Four starts getting pushed to a three or even Zone 5 starts getting pushed into a Zone 4 with certain crops and certain timings, we get into a problem. And it's those edges. So there's the thing about the United States is we have so much middle that we could adapt to this. Now, global food prices, that could be a problem. And I'm not saying that we might not see the increasing food prices in America, but food is so damn cheap the food prices can go up 10%. The average American, not every, but the average American can, can switch the generics if they, so generic brand if they have to, and, and, and not even really spend more money. Right? So I know some of you out there live pretty close to the edge right now. You're trying to put your lives together, and you might say, that's not me. I get it, but I, I just think the majority of Americans, unless this is some, unless this is a modern minimum level event, will largely be unaffected. But places where people worry about whether they're going to eat tomorrow because of not just the cost of food but its availability, this could stress an already stressed system. No matter what happens, expect the mainstream to continue the narrative that it's global warming and global warming is causing global cooling. Uh, and, oh my God, if you think it's bad now, wait till the minimum goes away. They will not get off their narrative until it's, so, it's, it's run for so long that people just get tired of it and go, okay, it's not going to happen. And like I said, by then I think a lot of what they're asking for and calling for and mandating government to do, the market is going to do anyway. Solar is getting cheaper. You know, wind is getting, you could, I'm tired about hearing about birds and windmills. Guys, 
you are you are worrying about pennies on the way to dollars if you're worried about windmills and birds. You know, or windmills cause cancer, or whatever stupid shit somebody comes up. The 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 anti alternative energy people are as bad or worse as the green weenies. They really are. There is a moderate middle that we can look at and say, hey, this is where these technologies make sense. This is how they're becoming more efficient. And I do think you're going to get to a point very soon where most people will be doing some level of solar energy production on their homes because it will be so financially advantageous to do so, you will do it for selfish reasons. I do believe Tony Seba is right. Maybe his timeline is a little condensed, but that's where we're headed. Uh, this thing, keep an eye on it. I will say that I think the odds that the, the, the planet will experience turmoil due to cooler than average temperatures is higher than the mainstream narrative that we were going to have that problem because it's going to get too warm. Society, if you look through history, has traditionally grown and done better during warm periods than cool periods. Cool periods have brought on things like famines. Cool periods have brought on things like pestilence, disease, epidemics, the plague, etc. We're not the people of the 1600s anymore, though. We have a lot of other ways we can mitigate this. I am the host of the Survival Podcast. I am supposed to put you in touch with risks and dangers. This is one. But don't, don't go doomsday prepper because of this, I guess is what I'm saying. And we'll keep an eye on it, and we'll pay attention to it, and we'll learn more as we go. But just going to say one more time on the Ice Age Farmer dude, I'm sure he's an all right guy. I'm sure he means well. But the actual issues with the USDA food supply reporting right now Uh, is is 90% this year due to flooding. And it can flood when it's 90 degrees, and it can flood when it's 80 degrees, and you have the same problem. Uh, before we go on, I also have an uh, article or a, a video with uh, a scientist named Valentina Zorokov uh, about the Grand Solar Minimum. It is, she's, English is not her native language, and it is a difficult interview to listen to. But this is an astrophysicist that has a report that basically says this is a big problem, and we do need to pay attention to this. And uh, I think it's worth listening to if you can get through it. And that's, so I have a link to that as well. Let's go on to our next one. This is, uh, you know, a day of stop worrying about things that uh, you shouldn't worry about, uh, like rabbit fat. Uh, it says in uh, this is from uh, Salvatore. Salvatore says in your Tuesday episode. On the Half Acre Homestead, you talked about mulching the garden, recommended hardwood mulch or straw. Curious on your thoughts on evergreen mulch. Are there any drawbacks, acidity, harmful compounds, etc., beyond the fact that hardwood mulch has uh, greater longevity? I don't want to get into, let me Google that for you scenario. Just thought you might find it interesting to discuss on the show. I just finished lot clearing for a home. We're going to build an end of about 12 to 15 yards of chipped up tree branches, some of which are black locusts, but most of which are spruce. My intention is to use the wood chips and mulch in the garden beds that we will be installing, unless there's some drawback to evergreens. Uh, for what it's worth, I will be building a few hugel beds in the fall. My intention is to use spruce trunks as a woody base, uh, planting in the spring. By that time, the chips will have aged for about nine months. Okay, so here we go. There is no reason to not use evergreen mulch. Um, there's been studies done where... They said, well, if there's a little bit of acidity, wouldn't that eventually make the soil acidic? And they monitored areas with spruce trees, et cetera, 
uh, in a soil underneath the fallen needles for 50 years, and there's little to no change in the soil. You're not going to alter soil pH with uh, conifer wood chippings. It's not going to happen. It's not a thing. Some of you right now are emailing me telling me how stupid I am, and I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm telling you it's not a thing. And if you stop listening to people in forums, and you actually go out and try to find any research-level data to support the concept that evergreen mulches cause acidity in soil, you will find absolutely nothing. Uh, they have very little ability to affect soil pH when they're fresh and green. Um, by the time they're brown and dead and chipped, they have none. And the very little is very little to begin with. And most soil probably could use a little bit more acidity, not all, but most anyway. And if you have a soil that is more acid than you would like, um, it is more acid than pure green pine needle in the first place is capable of making it. So it will still have almost no effect. So if you have access to mulch, then I think you should use it, uh, no matter the source, unless there's a chemical problem with it. If it's been, been sprayed with diesel fuel, I would advise you not to use it. Other, or if somebody coated it for some reason, had a 50-gallon drum of Roundup they wanted to get rid of it, so they decided to soak a wood chip pile in it, then I would not use that. Otherwise, I would use it. The reason I said hardwood is, is what I can get around here. Let's talk another thing that came up there that people are going, ah, uh, black locust. Uh, black locust being a very fungal-resistant wood. Well, the important thing to understand about black locust, and this is why it works just fine in chop-and-drop systems, is only the hardwood has that resistance to fungal activity and uh, that longevity. So, yeah, you can make fence posts out of a great big trunk of black locust, and what's going to happen is the bark's going to fall off, the thorns are going to fall off, the outer layer's going to kind of decay away, and that heartwood will last 100 years. So when you're talking about branches and stuff like that and, and chipping it up, it's going to break down just fine, and a little bit of it not breaking down is actually fine. It's not going to be a problem. There is only one thing that you should concern yourself when you're using conifers for mulch, and this is specifically when you're using something like a pine straw mulch, where it's not a mix. It is pure pine needle. If you do that, you may find that they have a pre-emergent effect. What does that mean? That means if you take and pull the mulch back and drop a tomato plant in there and push it back around it, it'll grow just fine. But if you put a bean seed in there and then you cover it with pine straw, it may not germinate. It may or it may not. It depends. I noticed this. My dad got very big at one time when he was landscaping our home into free stuff like he always was. And he could go up in the mountains and just you know fill up the back of the truck with pine straw for free. So he did that. And he was, he was big into free. So he was like digging up uh, uh, buck laurel, which is illegal in Pennsylvania, but no one cared. So he did it anyway. And he, like, landscaped the side of the house with buck laurel, and he put pine straw all around it for mulch. It was all free. All he had to do was go dig it up and do it. Well, we noticed something. There were literally no weeds that came up under the pine straw. But anything you planted in there as a plant grew just fine. So some things have what's called a pre-emergent effect. So unlike something like black uh, walnut, which actually has uh, a substance in it called juglone, which is... Uh, um, capable of actually interfering with the growth of other plants. Uh, we call it allopathic. Uh, unlike that, where it actually messes another plant up, what it, what it primarily does is prevent um, germination. 
So that's why you call it a pre-emergent. There's things called pre-emergent herbicides. Some of them are chemicals that are uh, man-made synthetics, and some of them are natural things. I think, I think corn gluten meal is a natural pre-emergent herbicide. So you put it down before the weeds come up, and the weeds don't come up as much, that type of thing. Um, but it's something that's already growing there, so if you spread it on grass, it has no effect on it, that type of thing. And I could be wrong about corn gluten meal doing that, but there are some natural versions of that. It seems to me, based on my limited experience playing around with pine straw, that it can be a pre-emergent herbicide, which can be a good thing. But it's something you need to know and the only thing I'd look out for. With being using the whole tree, branches, all that mix, I don't think you're going to have any of that. I would just go ahead and use it. And um, I have no qualms, concerns, problems whatsoever about using it as a mulch. Uh, next question. This is one on mortgage. And Shudra says... Would it make sense to put my savings on a mortgage if my savings pays 0% and my mortgage charges 4.6% and my mortgage has no redraw fees? So basically there's no penalty for early payments on his mortgage. Uh, let me start out with something. There is the case a lot of times that if you pay extra on your principal and interest, it does knock your mortgage payments, your mortgage, your uh, mortgage bounce down faster. It's often the case that they play a little trick. They say there's no fees uh, for it, and you don't have any penalty. But there's also a little box that needs to be ticked, or sometimes there's even a little thing that you need to say, I want this much extra to go on my mortgage balance. And if you don't do it, they won't do it. You'll send them an extra $200, and they will put that money into your escrow for paying your taxes and fees, and eventually one day you'll get money back from them as they readjust your escrow. Or if, it, or if your escrow has to go up because your property taxes went up, they'll just take it from that, and it'll delay how long before they change your total payment by adjusting it for your escrow needs. So that's one just thing that anybody that thinks, I'm going to put out $100, bucks, i am going to put $200, bucks, i am going to make two payments a month instead of one payment a month and make an extra payment every year, all those tricks, you need to make sure that there's not a gotcha in them and that the extra money is really going to your mortgage balance. And again, that's not a that's not anything to do with whether there's early payment fees or anything like that or, or penalties. It's only about the way they handle the money when they get it. They just assume, because it's in their best interest to do so, you wanted it to go to your escrow. Okay, so even a double payment, you could end up with a giant escrow balance. I'm telling you, it happens. All right. Now, let's talk about this. Number one, the 4.6% on your mortgage, if your credit's good, it may be the case that the best thing you could do right now is refinance. You may be able to do better. You may not. I don't know, but it's worth looking into. If your savings is paying zero interest, why do you have your savings in zero interest? So my, my way of looking at this is what is the purpose of a savings account? A savings account is a place to hold money in the short duration for needs that could pop up, i.e. emergencies or things that aren't necessarily emergencies, but rather than finance this thing, I would like to buy it and then reestablish that portion of my savings so I have this buffer. So my first question is, in your savings, outside of your investments, that I also hope you have for your long-term retirement, but in your savings, can right now you pay 90 days of your bills if you lose your job? Because if you can't, this discussion doesn't even matter. I don't give a shit what your interest rate is. The 90 days of savings is necessary to keep you where you'll be able to make your damn mortgage payment if you lose your job or such. So assuming you have more than 90 days of bills and savings, assuming you're investing for your retirement, saving for your retirement, and you have all that other stuff, and you just have more surplus savings, 
Then my question is, why aren't you investing that money in a way that can make you better than 4%? Why, aren't, why isn't that money going to your retirement planning, even if it's not tax-deferred? Because you can have securities, mutual funds, ETFs, etc. You can have investments that are for your retirement that aren't necessarily in a 401k or an IRA. You don't have to put it in there for it to be kind of earmarked for your future, right? So it would seem that in, now if you're just risk adverse anyway, okay. So now we've gotten to the point where you do have something going to your retirement, whatever it is. You have a 90-day emergency fund in savings. You, for one reason or other, are too risk-adverse to add more money to your investments. And now you have surplus monies, and you can only make a tawdry quarter percent or one percent from your bank, and yet the govern or the, the interest holder, uh, the, the lien holder on your mortgage is taking four and a half percent roughly from you. So now, do I pay down my mortgage? I think even then, we make the determination not based on the interest rates, we make the determination on is at this point in my life, does it make sense for me as a strategic goal to pay off my home early? In most instances, the answer is going to be yes. And it's not going to be so much about the interest. It's going to be more about having a home that I don't have to make payments on, especially with the salt limits changing the way tax returns work. And then one thing you need to look at with a home and the being comfortable with paying down a mortgage or paying off a mortgage, as long as your credit doesn't go off the rails from something like a repossession of a vehicle or something like that, as long as that's the case and you decided you wanted money out of the home for some other usage, it's one of the easiest ways to secure a loan. I have a paid-for home. It's worth $200,000. I'd like $100,000. So it's only a 50% loan-to-value ratio on the underlying collateral, which is the real estate property itself. You have good credit. You were able to pay the house off in the first place. You know, here, sign this. We'll give you money. 15 years, what do you, what do you want? Right. So taking that equity back out through the form of a, of, of a, a loan is almost always an option. So I'm comfortable paying down the house. But, my, my, again, my questions for you then, do you have a 90-day emergency fund? You don't? <laughs> We're not talking about that. Right? Are you going to take money from your 90-day emergency fund to do this? So, like, yeah, I got 90 days. That's where I'm going to get the money from. No. You've got to have that nest egg that's sitting there that if tomorrow you walk in and they go, dude, you're fired. Why? We don't like your face. Whatever it is. Bye. Uh, okay that you can take care of yourself for three months while you figure out what to do. Once you have that, you can spend your savings however you want to, and I'm okay with it. Hopefully that's a good answer for you. Last question. Let's do a gun question today. Kicking off the week, why not talk about guns, and specifically ammunition? Jack, this comes from Michael. How do I determine which ammunition is the best fit for my Savage Axis in 308? I've got an Axis in 308. Bulk 308 win ammo has 19 brands of ammunition with 23 projectile types. In 16 different weights. I know that a bullet of 145 grains will have a different effect at down ranges than, say, a bullet of 180 grains. I'd like to buy a large quantity of the right ammo so that I will always know that I'm sighted in. Probably my bullet will always hit the target, 
that I am aiming at, whether I'm shooting at a deer at 200 yards away or at my home in East Texas, where I move to Alaska and shoot elks. Alright, so don't buy a whole shitload of ammo then. Just don't. First of all, you at least know what you want to do with this gun. And the fact that you might move to Alaska one day and want to shoot elks, I don't care. I don't care. No, what you want to do is shoot deer in Texas. So we need to look at something that makes sense for shooting deer in Texas and yet has enough of um, a flexibility that if we've got an opportunity to hunt somewhat larger game, you're not outgunned with the 308. So I'm going to tell you right now, just with that, You're looking at 165 to 180 grains, with most ammo being your best choice. 165 grain, um, 30 caliber bullets have a really good uh, downrange energy delivery. Uh, in some ways, they shit. They're kind of a balance point. Most of your 180 grain projectiles, though, have a bit better of a consistency. And if I was going to shoot elk, With a 308 or a 3006, I would be looking at something like federal premiums and 180 grains. I'm not looking at laying up 10,000 rounds of that, though. It's very expensive ammunition. So the best thing that you can do whenever you're in this situation is to first, let's determine the weight range of projectile that makes the most sense for the flexibility we're looking for. Now we're at 161.80. Then you have to ask yourself, how, how likely is it that I really am going to need to rely on that extra uh, construction quality and thickness of jacket and holding together of that 180 over that 165. And if it leads you to the 180, it leads you to the 180. We're not trying to make a rifle here that we can split you know, somebody's eyeball out at, at 500 meters with. It's a 308. There's limits to what it can do for us as a hunting implement on deer and certainly on elk. So... Then we need to buy several different varieties of that ammo. And then we need to shoot that weapon from a bench rest with a good shooter at known ranges and compare how those rounds compare to each other. And whichever one happens to shoot best for us, that's the one we're going to settle on. Because in the end, if you shoot an elk through both lungs with a 165-grain bullet, it's going to die. The question is, how far will it go before it dies? Will it, will it fall over, or will we have to traffic track it 200 yards? And when we find it, will it be down in a ravine where we're using a come-along and take it out a piece at a time? We don't really know. Okay? So, again, I'm going to say, this is going to piss some people off. I feel that rounds like the 7mm, the standard 7mm Mauser, the 7mm 08, the 308, the 270, the 280, the 306, .308. When we move into elk, specifically bull elk, we are at the minimum acceptable level of performance for shooting elk. That said, a lot of people have used that minimum level to put a lot of elk in the freezer. We're shooting 400-pound cows. That's different than shooting a 700-pound bull. All right, For deer, all of them... In everything except something nobody would use, like some kind of hopped-up 110 spire point or something, uh, is going to work just fine for deer. So when it, in a 30 caliber, 150, 165, 180, all make deer dead. So whatever shoots best is what you want. You can sit around looking at ballistic charts and fretting over losing 200 pounds more energy at 450 meters versus 400 meters if we went to the 180 versus the 160, and it's all bullshit. It's all bullshit. 
You asked me what I – and JR, who's done some guest spots for us, JR Haley, um, on guns, when he asked me what should he take with his 308 for elk to New Mexico, told Federal Premium 180-grain nozzle partitions. Why? Because they're going to work. Like, there's a lot of other stuff that'll work, but I know that's going to work because I've done it myself, right? So, I mean, you, you would be hard-pressed to find a better ammo for your rifle than what I just gave you, Federal Premium 180-grain nozzle partitions. However, again, they're expensive, and if you wanted to lay up some extra ammo, you might try some lesser quality uh, ammo, find something that shoots consistently accurate, and lay some of that up, it's still going to kill deer just fine. If you ever find yourself pushing your weapon to its limits with the size of animal, then you should use the most heavily constructed, best ammo for it, regardless of what you generally shoot out of it. And I have one caveat here. I have found certain guns that absolutely do not like certain ammo or even certain bullet weights. I have a 1917 Enfield, not the British one, the American one, that shoots 30.06s. It was sporterized by some redneck who should have never cut it up, but he did, so I have it now, and it is what it is. I've shot a lot of deer with it. If I put anything from cheap green and yellow box Remington to federal premiums in it, 165 to 180 grain, this gun shoots like a match-quality rifle. I'm talking quarter-sized groups at 100 yards consistently. I don't know why. But if I put 150 grain ammo in it, I don't care if it's Winchester, Remington, Federal, it doesn't matter. It shoots very poorly. I'm talking opening up to like three and a half, four inch groups. Still minute of deer, but it, I, it's bad. I don't want to use it. So if I use that gun, I use a heavier bullet. Why does it do it? I don't know. Is it because the bullet's a little shorter and the rate of twist is odd in that rifle or something? I don't look at the rate of twist. It doesn't seem that much different than a lot of other things. I don't know. So you may find that your particular rifle or a particular rifle model may just not like a certain particular ammo or a certain particular bullet. If you find that, don't use it. So easy way to do this, four or five boxes of something that all of them would be good enough, whatever one shoots best, so you want to shoot. What will be the most accurate ammo in your rifle would probably be learning how to hand load because it would allow you to do what's called fire forming the brass and then next size only reloading. So when you get a 3006 cartridge, that cartridge has to go into a Remington Model 700, a Winchester Model 70, uh, a Browning BAR in 30-06. It has to go into any rifle anywhere. So there's specifications to the dimensions of that cartridge. And when we reload, we if we're reloading so that we can give that ammo to a friend and expect it to reliably function in any uh, cartridge, we do what's called a full-length resize that, that completely puts that brass back to that factory specification. However, if we're reloading for our Savage uh, axis, once we fire that brass, we'll use a resizing die that only resizes the neck. Because when you fired it, that brass went out and fit the exact dimensions of your chamber. And in a little variances and all, it's all been compensated for now. And it is very difficult to believe that if you took the time reloading to find the powder and the bullet combination, that you couldn't do better with handloads for accuracy. Is it worth it? No, it's not. 
Factory ammo is so good, it's not worth it just for the accuracy unless you're shooting in competitions or something. Unless you like it. Unless you like it. I love to reload. It it pacifies me. It soothes the, the savage beast inside of me to take the time to think these things out and to have to be meticulous. I can't I can't half-ass reloading and throw a double charge by accident and blow up my breach. I have to pay it, and it's and I enjoy it, and it's good for me. So there you go. But the, the, the easy short answer, four or five boxes of things that would all work, shoot them and compare them. You cannot make this decision simply by looking at ballistics tables and forms. It's not possible, and no guy on no podcast anywhere can just give you the answer either. Your gun will tell you what it likes best when you fire it in your gun. That brings us to the end of another show. If you enjoyed today's show, I want to remind you guys uh, that you can help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Uh, that makes me realize I actually skipped over the question on conifer trees for mulch. Uh, the guy threw in like a bonus little extra question in there, and I did not answer it. Then I'll answer it now because it kind of fits with today's. He said that the fungal inoculation, the mycorrhizal fungal inoculation that I recommend in my fertility program, uh, is not sold out. Do I have a comparable product? Uh, the best one I found, other than the one I generally recommend, is a product from a company called Green Eden, uh, Green Eden Fungal Inoculation. There's a link in the show notes today for that. ties in nicely with my item of the day for T-SPAS today. Remember, you can support this show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. So here is the product of the day, Garrett Juice Plus. I've talked about Garrett Juice for a long time. It is a compost tea mixed with some other things. You can use it as a soil drench for fertilizer, but its real value to me is being able to mix it up in a sprayer and spraying it as a foliar feed onto the leaves of your plants. Here's why I decided to bring that product around today, and it ties back into my, my total fertility program, which is a seven-product fertility program. If you made me pick only two items out of my fertility program, It would be Garrett juice, or I would have to make a similar compost tea myself from scratch and Dr. Earth Premium Gold Fertilizer. Well, we're at a point right now, specifically for my region, and a lot of you guys are about a month behind me because your weather's different, where plants go through a mid-season fertility stress. You think you've done everything right. You've fertilized your plants well. You don't really think, and they really do need kind of a mid-season fertility kick. This is the easiest thing you can do. You mix up your Garrett juice, and a couple times a week for two weeks, I'm sorry, every other day for two weeks, give your, your plants a light spraying of Garrett juice in the evening. This is after the sun's going down. You're not going to get spot burn from the wet and what have you. Just go out and just spray your plants. They don't need to be sprayed heavily. So even a small half-gallon sprayer can spray like a whole garden. I mean, all you're doing is walking by your peppers and tomatoes and just, and just a little light coating. Also, though, use about a two-ounce, uh, like a shot glass to measure your, your uh, fertilizer. And around specifically your heavy feeders like peppers and tomatoes, just put about two ounces of a good, solid, organic fertilizer around them. If you don't get a lot of rain or if you're using wicking beds or something like that, for the period of time that you're doing the garret juice, this two-week period, water the base of those plants once a day. Good time to do it in the evening. You can do it first thing in the morning, too. You don't want to get your plants wet when the sun's beating down on them. You can get leaf burn and stuff like that. 
the reason you're going to water. You don't need a lot of water. I'm assuming your irrigation is taken care of uh, for the plant's needs. That solid fertilizer is going to sit on that soil, even if you pull your mulch back and it's under the mulch, and it is, you want to get some of it into the roots. So what we're doing is we're hitting the leaves and we're hitting the roots at the same time with a fertility kick right when the plant is in the midsummer stress time so that it has what it needs to deal with the pests, to deal with the drought, etc. And we're charging it up. A lot of you, by the time you hit that, especially things like peppers and tomatoes, you've gotten a big crop, and your plant is going to not produce a lot for a few weeks in the, 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 the heat of the summer. Your nightshades, again, peppers and tomatoes especially, are going to say, like, I'm done for a while. And then they'll flower again as it begins to cool off, and the days begin to shorten, and they'll produce that big end-of-season bounty. If you give them this, it won't make all of them do it, but many of them will give you more production, even through that midsummer heat. The big thing is, though, they'll be nice and healthy when that second flush comes through. Garrett juice would be my go-to. I have the link and everything in the show notes, the full fertility program. I'm sorry, in the, in the write-up today for the item of the day at tspaz.com. I will say this about carrot juice, though. It's heavy. A gallon weighs eight pounds. Okay. So if you buy it on Amazon, even when it says free shipping, there's some price manipulation to cover the shipping costs, right? Not everything's free shipping on Amazon the way they say it is. If they sell this locally to you, and like where I live, you can get it at Lowe's and get it at a lot of garden stores. If they sell this locally, it's marketed by a company called Medina. Go buy this one locally and get your other stuff through T-Spaz. Because don't pay more than you have to. If you can't get it locally, it's the best thing that I can recommend that comes in a bottle. It also can seem expensive to people, okay? It is uh, a gallon, though, and it actually makes a hell of a lot more than a gallon. It will make 64 gallons of spray. 64 gallons of spray. And again... If you mix up a one-gallon sprayer, an average vegetable garden, you'd probably spray it three or four times. If you wanted to spray an acre, like you're just going to mass spray an like acre of grass, you would use about 34 gallons. Um, so, uh, I'm sorry, about 35 gallons. So one bottle would make enough to spray almost two acres, and most of us are you know, our little garden plot that we're worried about with this stuff. So it is very economical, very affordable, if you want to make it yourself, there's a link in the write-up today to Howard Garrett's website. Even though he markets this product, he tells you exactly how to make it from your own compost tea. If you want to make it yourself, you can. And I break down the Garrett Juice, the Garrett Juice Plus, and the Garrett Juice Pro as to the differences. If you guys ever have questions about fertility, this is something I love. Send them in for a show like this, and I'll handle them. With that, we've come to the end of another show. It is time for our item of the day today. I'm sorry, our song of the day today. And we're in Charlie Daniels week. We ended last week with songs that turned 40 this week, or last week. Uh, and the last one of the week was Charlie, a Charlie Daniels song, Devil Went Down to Georgia. Uh, that, I guess, spurred uh, John Adam to do a Charlie Daniels week. So he had five Charlie Daniels songs for me this week, and I changed one. Changed today's. Um, when I say Simple Man, uh, you probably think of Skinner. Charlie Daniels did a song called Simple Man. It's a different song, totally different song than the one you're probably thinking of. And that was the one that, uh, that John had queued up for me today. I decided to skip it. I decided to skip it for a variety of reasons. The biggest one, though, is that... In that song, he talks about basically how bad drug dealers are. And I know some drug dealers that are some pretty bad guys. I know there's some of them out there. But in general, he's talking about hanging people for selling a plant. I'm 
I'm sorry. I know I liked that song when I was a teenager. I've matured. I'm not a, I'm not a fan of it anymore. There's a bigger reason, though. Because, hey, music is what it is. It's subjective, right? And that song has a lot of things in it I also do agree with. No, the reason I decided to do this, when you think Charlie Daniels, you think Devil Went Down to Georgia. You think, you know, a lot of the songs that we're going to hear this week, you think of that kind of fast tempo, heavy fiddle, keyboards in the back, dun, 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 dun. Like, that's what you think of. The song I picked for you today is called High Lonesome. Uh, this was from 1976. That's more than 40 years old. That's 43 years ago this song came out. And it was the title track of the album that it was on, the High Lonesome album. And this song is one of Charlie Daniels' few ballads. And I love it, but it also shows you kind of why he didn't do a lot of them. He's got some flat spots in it and things like that. I mean, the guy's voice is what it is. But this is this song I've always loved because... It was a song back when there were Walkman radios and you made tapes and stuff, right, from albums. Right? Remember those days? That, like, if I walked around the mountains I hunted and stuff as a kid, this would be one of the songs to be on a tape like that that I was listening to and I was taking a walk in the woods by myself. There's a line in this song that says, God, don't ever let this mountain change. And it, it hurts my heart a little bit that a lot of the places that I grew up as a kid, those mountains did change and not in a good way. But I also know there's places that haven't. And there's places that that maybe never will. That will always preserve as the wilderness that they are. And it's the sentiment that gives us the impetus to do that. It's also got a bluesy feel. This song just cries out to be something you listen to sitting on a porch of a cabin smoking a cigar and drinking some really good bourbon with some friends and not talking a lot. Just having that peaceful moment for a while. So I love it for that as well. Well, here you guys go. Charlie Daniels in one of his rare ballads as we kick off Charlie Daniels Week. Hi, Lonesome. With that, has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't.
Mouth. 